Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. And welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Welcome back. This is episode 352. Today, I'm excited to share with you Charles Carrillo. Charles is the managing partner of Harborside Partners, a real estate syndication firm. He owns over 250 multifamily units across three states. He's been actively investing since 2006. He also hosts the Global Investors Podcast, where he interviews professionals about investing in U.S. real estate. Charles and I actually met a couple years ago at the Best Ever Conference in Denver, so we are just connecting off mic here, reminiscing about that. So with that, hey, Charles, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Well, Charles, hey, kind of catch us up on who you are, what you do, your background, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I'm originally from Connecticut. I started investing in multifamily in 2006, and it was with a three-unit property and not the best time to invest in the real estate, I guess, per se. Still have the property today. And we were able to, like a year or two later, I bought another one that was uh, another three-unit that was like a block away. I strategically kind of bought them. And then in 2009, I bought another one that was like a a mixed-use five-unit property. And so at that time, I self-managed them all. We had a couple garages with them. And I moved down to Florida in 2012. And I, had a, I was pushed now to sell them, which I didn't want to do, or put them into third-party management, which I did. And I have uh, for the last eight years. And it's great. It's a great way. And it was the best thing I ever did while moving down to Florida, but also to kind of do the third-party management. And I grew up in a real estate family. And my dad had a lot of apartment buildings, and he self-managed them with a small team of people, but he never had a third-party management company per se. So that was something that I was kind of pushed into doing. And it was great because now you could spend my time building my business and not just managing tenants and termites and everything like that. Sure. Well, let's just dive right into that aspect of self-management versus third-party professional property management. That's a fork many people find themselves at some point in the road, whether it's at Three units, 30 units, 300 units. At some point, people contemplate either, you know, creating their own property management firm, hiring out third party property management, or just continuing to kind of mom and pop self manage. You know, what were some of the dilemmas, some of the pros and cons you saw? I know it's almost starts kind of like with a mindset perspective, right? Like, do you want to free up your time? What's your time worth? Is it the best and highest use of your time? So, what was going through your mind when you made that transition? Well, when I purchased the first one, I was only 22. So it was, I was living in one of the units. And actually, my brother was living there as well. And so it was very easy to manage it when you're living there, right? And yeah. it's very simple. I mean, you know, that's kind of uh, not a true management. When I bought the second one, like I said, it was only a block or two away. So it was very easy to bring that one under the same umbrella, right? And uh, literally, you could walk to them and there was no issues with, we kind of set up everything 
with like having a storage place and everything like this and we were collecting rent. When I was handing over management to third party, the biggest problem I had, I guess it wouldn't be a problem, but it was rent collection. Not people not paying, it was that it, you know, during that time of the month, it was you would take like two days to do it all. And it would yeah. take hours and someone's at your office and someone's not at your office. And um, I didn't have it computerized or anything like that, which would be definitely something I would do today. But it really depends on the properties, depends on how far you are from them. And it really depends on what your nine to five is if you have one. If you are flexible with that or you're doing something different, you know that's something that you can work it into. Obviously, if you're doing something within real estate, that's something that is great because then you can kind of kind of harness both of them together. And the other thing too, is that the team that you have, and not that you're going to have a full team with uh, you know, a small apartment building that you start off with, but having handymen and having contractors that, like I say, not out of the yellow pages, and you're actually like getting deals from, right? You're not paying $130 an hour for somebody to come over and fix your AC or whatever. And this is something that's very important because you can self-manage them. If you have very good people on the ground and you're, even if you have a W-2 or whatever you're doing, and you have someone that has the keys, that has access to the units or whatever it might be, you really don't have to be there. And you, so there's different ways. It depends on how you're structured. But if you've never done anything in real estate and you're buying something, the management fees are going to kind of eat up your profits because on small, yeah. they it's like 10%. So it's something that I would try doing myself. If you were very busy, I would start going with a larger property, you know, 10 plus units, let's say, you know what I mean? Larger, small, multifamily, let's say, if that's yeah. the thing. Just so you have some sort of scale in there and you probably are getting a rate at uh, 7% or something like this. And, you know, you actually, you're utilizing not just you, them for collecting rent and everything like that. You're utilizing them and they have the handyman. So like one of my property managers, they don't do any outsource painting. Everything's done in house. That's going to be a lot less expensive and they can control when my you know make readies and everything like that is done. And when apartments are, hey, that person just moved out. And a week later, hey, this is ready to rent. And that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear, hey, the contractor is not showing up and this and that. I want someone that's on their bill. And so that's a plus two when you're hiring the property manager. You're not just tapping into them to take phone calls you know, with the toilet problem that everybody hears about. But it's also that you're going to tap into everybody they have. Like, So I had point operator washers and dryers in one of my properties in Connecticut. And they're not going to call someone, aka through like the yellow pages, right? They have someone that after hours that works for like Coke or Pepsi, one of the distributors that fixes, fixes like the refrigerators and stuff, comes after hours and does it for like 35 or 40 bucks an hour, right? Yeah. That's the person you want. You don't want to be like calling through. Now it's going through Google and trying to find someone. And, you know, hey, I come out in two weeks and it's $175 or, you know what I mean? Plus yeah, parts right. and then I'll yeah. call you and how do I get paid if you're not there and all this kind of stuff. So that's the whole plus about using the property manager. And the last thing with the property manager is that when you're tapping into them, you're also tapping into their years of management and experience in an area. For example, with some of the older properties we own, you know, it's going where you have a lot of stuff that might be grandfathered in stuff that's not going to fly today. And that's usually like a lot with um, like, you know, fire requirements, yeah, fire right. alarms, everything, extinguishers, everything you can do. A lot of stuff you can't do. You know, a lot of stuff you can't upgrade. I can't add sprinklers to one of my properties that's a three unit, right? I can add a fire alarm system and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, but the thing though is that when one of the properties we had, the, you know, you have the walkthrough with the fire, you know, the marshal and stuff like this, and they're telling, you know, telling you what's going on, what's happening. 
and they'll give you a list and my property manager goes through it. And he was telling me before and he goes, well, you know, this is what the marshal says. If I'm going to come back and tell him we're going to do these couple things, this one is, you know, kind of prohibitive and this needs other two will rectify that. And if I need to, I have the cell phone number for the chief. Like I don't have the cell phone number for the chief, you know, and a fire chief. So it's like, that's something where you're tapping in and they know exactly, listen, this is a little bit too much. This is a little over. This is fine. Like, this is what we feel. We've done this for other properties, our other thousand, 2000 units we manage. And that's going to be a lot more than, hey, it's my first property. Really? I need to have all that stuff in there. And they didn't tell me this when I bought it and stuff. So (laughs) just uh, my two cents on that. Well, Charles, we're recording this in October of 2020, where we're finding ourselves just witnessing like these mega shifts and massive trends and differences in how people live and work and interact with each other right before our eyes. I've been thinking about this lately. I want to get your perspective, but we find ourselves in a time where either possibly yourself as the investor or your resident now has the flexibility to move locations, maybe even move cities or even states. Now that opens up a world of possibilities to investing out of market for you, right? Maybe you're an investor where you're investing only in your home market, but now you've got the opportunity to move from Connecticut down to beautiful Tampa, right? Or vice versa or whatever that looks like for you. And now you find yourself at that crossroads of having to make that decision of self-managing, third-party management sooner than you thought. What's your take there? And you know, kind of maybe elaborate on that kind of progression. So if you're moving and what you would do with your old properties, is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, it kind of depends on what your goal is for you know moving a lot of parts in Connecticut, like a lot of parts of the Northeast, you know, not counting New York City or Boston. They're very cash flow markets. These smaller markets, I guess you would say, outside of the major cities are cash flow markets. So you're going to be able to make a lot of money on cash flow compared to, say, if we were buying in Tampa, right, in these growing areas, or you know, in Dallas or Atlanta, and so figuring out exactly what your goal is with that property and then what is how are you going to achieve that in the sense of is it best for me to hold on this property I've got fantastic financing on it it's all fixed and I'm just trying to pay this thing off and I'll be paid off in so many years and I just need to have a property manager that's going to help me you know through this period maybe I temporarily move somewhere right and that's a different strategy where I just need someone to handle this while I've moved abroad or moved abroad or moved out of state. And I think it's just comes down to the investor and figuring out exactly when they're making the decision on what they want to do. And obviously, we're seeing this ability to, like you said, move cities and be able... And I think for tenants, as coming from a landlord, you know that's going to be something where B-class, B-class landlords and property owners are going to see more of that with their tenant base, and then if you're buying and investing into C-class. C-class are going to be a lot of jobs that just require you to be in a in location, right? They're essential yeah. jobs mostly. I mean, we saw with some of our C-plus properties, less than 2%, let's say, of uh, properties we had pre-COVID, people lost their jobs, right? Very minimal, you know, because it's a lot of workforce housing and it's essential workforce housing. And you know, some businesses might be scaling back that are still essential and you might lose someone, which is kind of how we did it with one of our tenants. But it's, I think with B-class tenant, B-class landlords that are in more urban areas, that's something that they have to worry more about. I think if you have a suburban property, that's something where you actually might be seeing even more people moving out because 
you know, maybe they don't want to live in the suburbs. Maybe they just want to go out to something that's quieter. Maybe they want to go out to something that's less expensive. You know, everything that great in the city is actually not, you know, you can't really utilize it during COVID. So it's something that moving out to the suburbs is something that you can actually utilize these, you know, the everything around you. And so I think with landlords, it's just kind of coming down and figuring out what your goal is with the properties that you're planning on selling, which probably, you know, the beginning of COVID, people had a lot of uncertainty. So it probably wouldn't be the best part for some of the commercial real estate. Obviously, residential is going crazy, but. Yeah, sure. Well, Charles, we kind of dove deep into the weeds there real quick right off the bat of third-party management versus self-management. But I want to kind of pull back up here to that 30,000-foot view. You know, you said you were raised in a real estate family, so you kind of had this real estate understanding from an early age. You went out and bought that first triplex. What was it that about real estate that drew you to it? Why did you continue investing? And how have you scaled your business to the point where it's at today? So in the beginning, it wasn't really scalable how I was doing it. I wasn't really strategic on how I was building it. I was finding <laughs> properties that were good deals. and I didn't really have any kind of goal. I was like, oh, this is a great deal. I just know, you know this size apartment because you, you know, when you buy one and then in your next one, you go, oh, this apartment was so easy to rent. This area is great. And so when you're buying additional properties after your first one, you kind of have an idea of what is going to be the easiest, right? And you obviously are going to make mistakes in your first property. I think that how I did that, and to answer your question, was I was a little bit more, I guess, I became able to systemize it when I started getting into larger properties or getting more properties as well. Once I started having you know, a dozen plus units and stuff like this, then when you put management in place, you can negotiate a better deal. You can have a superintendent that handles a lot of the other activities, right? Like that your property manager probably won't take care of, which is like your, uh, you know, landscaping and snow and lawn and stuff like this. But the other thing too is that when I was getting into larger properties, it's much easier to scale, right? So it's kind of when you're buying, it's better to figure out kind of what your goal is for if I'm going to buy, I'm only buying, you know, three flexes and stuff like this tries, and then I'm going to buy a larger apartment complex, or I'm going to bring someone on, or I want to buy just 20 plus units. And my goal is to have 40 or 50 units and hire a full-time handyman. So it's really figuring out upfront what your goal is. And I know that's very difficult for someone starting out, but you can scale it. There's going to, you know, you can find the right people to help you, even if you have a small portfolio. Some people just want a small portfolio where there's no mortgage. They get it paid off and then it's all cash flow, minimal units, minimal headaches as they think. But really when you're able to scale it was when I was putting more units and now you have something when you're going to property managers, when you're going to those contractors, it's, hey, we have this property over here. I want to add one more in here. Give me a quote on landscaping for this. Give me a quote on handling this aspect of it, you know, uh, pest control on this. Or, and it's all going to be less expensive and less expensive for every unit. So really systemizing it, putting a team in place, which is really mainly your property manager and with the other people that they're going to encompass so you can manage those properties efficiently. But the easiest question is just adding more units was the easiest way to scale it. Yeah. Two things you mentioned there, kind of niching down in your strategy starting out, right? I think it's really important. As a new investor, you might think to yourself, well, I'm saying no to all these good deals and I need to chase that land deal and I need to look at that larger multifamily deal and there's fix and flip across the road and you kind of start chasing all these shiny objects and you're never really gaining traction in one area. I was guilty of that myself. I think sometimes I still have to stiff arm some things. I see a deal come across. I'm like, it's not in your wheelhouse. Kind of stay on the straight and narrow, stay in your lane, right? And it takes a lot of discipline to do that. What's your take there? 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And there's a lot of people like when the first Triplex we bought, we were buying it from, I remember sitting at closing table and the two investors I was buying from actually had units. They were selling their small stuff to go into larger stuff. Mm-hmm. So they were 15 years ahead of where I want to be, I guess you would say, maybe 10 years ahead or whatever it was. And they were just going through and cleaning out all house of all these like smaller properties. And they were focusing on you know, 15, 18 units and above. So that was kind of their mentality. And they were letting us know when they were selling it, what they were doing. So, and, you know, it's just something where, you know, when you're buying those properties or when you have to keep that focus, because the focus is power in your strategy, right? And it's easier to, when you're seeing a lot of deal flow coming in, that's when I think you have some people that are going to like wholesale out a deal that they see or other people I used to work with, like the people that I purchased properties before this group. And then I bought from a similar investor about two years later for a second triplex. And that was the same that he was a contractor and he would flip properties and all this stuff. And he would call me afterwards to wholesale properties that he had off market that some of them were great deals and just, you know, adding a few percent onto him just so he keep his lead with the bank coming in of all the different foreclosures. And he's like, I can't handle this duplex or this triplex. And you could buy those if, you know, and he, what he would do is he would buy them, he would hold on to select ones and he would sell out the rest of them. And he, when you have full-time, he was a contractor, he had full-time people on payroll and stuff like this. So it's a much different than your, you know, one-off guy with a W-2 or a woman with a W-2 that's investing. So you have to be much more, like you said, focused because I can't just, it's much different when you're like, you know what, that's a great duplex. We're going to make $50,000 after we do it. When they're done here, I'll send them over there to like do this and we can manage to at the same time and keep them busy. That's a much different strategy than someone that has limited time, right? Between 5 and 7 p.m. or <laughs> 7 and 8 a.m., you're running your business. It's a much different mindset. So right, like you're saying, the focus is power when you're in any type of business, right? Yeah, sure. Now you talked about kind of scaling and in conjunction with that cash flow piece. When I started out, I bought a small single family home and it was cash flowing, let's call it $150, $200 a month. And at the time I thought, wow, that's so cool. But at the same time, it really wasn't moving the needle for me, right? And then you kind of start to think, well, how do I scale this thing? And you look, how many more single families would this take? Well, how many more duplexes or small multis would this take? Well, that's a significant less number and you're able to scale a little quicker, right? So that's what drew me to multifamily specifically, but kind of talk about the power of scale and how it's impacted your life. It's funny because everybody kind of has a different business plan. When you start dealing with owners, mom and pop, and everybody has a different plan of how they got these properties, how they did it. Another real estate investor when I was younger that my dad would see, we'd see at the courthouse sometimes. And this guy had like 30 or 43 families in the same town, right? And that was it. Like he had them paid off. And that was like all, you know, he had a full time person that handled it. And that was his whole thing. That was how he scaled his business. He was an attorney and he would just like pick up one or two of these three families. When he started out per year and he started up picking up more, and now he was just full time in real estate and he had all these paid off. So that was a different strategy. I think when you're getting into the larger multifamily, it's a much safer investment. So someone was asking me like a day or two ago about when you would leave debt on a property. And I was thinking about, it, I was like, you know, on the smaller multifamilies, they're just going to be a lot more volatile. So it's going to be something where, you know, like you said, your single family house, you could have a great tenant there for 24 months and yeah. then <laughs> months 25 through 30. No one or it got trashed, you have to do it. And all your profits for two years gone, right? That sounds exactly like how it went. <laughs> <laughs> so in that situation, you might say, okay, well, I want it's a great property in this great area, all this kind of stuff. I'm just going to hold on and go through all of this and get it paid off, right? And then that's going to be my goal. 
So I see that in like smaller multifamily, that's a much more, it's a kind of a better plan of getting rid of your debt payment. When you're getting into larger multifamily, you have more options. And really on larger multifamily, if you're a sophisticated investor, let's say, so say million dollars, million and a half plus properties, right? You're going to consistently, you know, how commercial lending is set up, you're usually going to be refinancing that out every 10 years, right? And a sophisticated investor is going to be pulling out not a sizable, but a very good chunk of equity, right? And putting in their pocket, even when they're refinancing and not saying you have to refinance it at, you know, 80%. But when you're refinancing, say at 55 or 60%, and you're still taking out money, that's a much more sophisticated investor. So you still own the property. It's very under leveraged, right? There's not going to be a problem. You have 20 units or 15 units paying you rent. So you can keep the debt on there and all the benefits that go with it. And you can start using that money for other properties or other investments. But yeah, I mean, that's really when I'm looking at properties, when you're going to make your decision of where you're going with it. And like you were saying before about scaling with it, um, you know, just if you have that kind of process together, right, of where you're going to go with it, then you can then say, all right, well, I know this checks off the boxes or this doesn't, right? And it has to check off these or I can't do the property. And then when you talk to people and they go, well, it has to have this type of cash on cash return, has to have this. And obviously you might be a little flexible. But then you see some stuff that comes through and you're like, this isn't even close, right? And that's what it's made for is really not to waste your time when you're reviewing properties, right? So you can really focus on the ones that are kind of move you forward towards your goal. Yeah, sure. Well, Charles, maybe somebody's thinking, hey, you know, I do have a triplex or I have a couple small multifamilies and I see where Charles is at, 250 plus units. How do I scale to that point? What was your blueprint for getting there? It comes down to the point where like, you know, you're figuring out everybody's going to run out of money, right? And that's just what it comes down to. Every investor that's going to be an active investor is going to run out of money. So really, it's great that you're starting with smaller units. Just see a lot of people today that just want to go straight for large complexes. And that's great. I wouldn't be able to raise money without having a track record. So it was much harder. Yeah, That's what I was thinking. You know what I mean? You know, in those shoes, and I would say I would never invest with someone that doesn't have a track record, right? Mm-hmm. So it's something that when you have a track record, even if it's threes or sixes or whatever you're investing into, you have a track record. You have these properties. I can see them. I've managed them. Your investors can see them, right? You know, they know that you're successful in what you're doing. And then when you start looking for larger properties, you're then going to figure out it gets more strategic in the sense of what am I? What is my really special sauce? Because there's going to be things in the whole process that you hate doing, right? And there's going to be parts of the process that you love doing, right? So, you know, I personally don't have a problem doing the own management, like certain things myself. I don't want to be in there like snaking toilets and stuff like that. I've done that for so many years, but like stopping by properties, seeing contractors, stuff like this is stuff I used to do with my dad all the time. It's, yeah. not a, it's not really an issue. And we'd have, he'd have them on different blocks near each other. He had like very honed in on how he did it. So that's not really an issue. Is it the best use of my time now? No, it's not. So do I go to the properties? Yes. I'll stop by our properties, especially ones locally in Florida very often, and, and just kind of see how everything's going and see how management's going, see how everything's, you know, like a surprise pop up there. But the thing though, is that when you are working with these different, becoming more strategic in what you're kind of planning on, it's really focusing on finding those partners for stuff you don't want to do. So this person's a construction professional, perfect for asset management. This person's great at talking to brokers. This person's great at raising money. And you kind of have to start then employing, I need to have partners. As much as I don't want to have them, and I probably never had them before, I need to have partners in what I'm doing. And it's a very normal thing because people just don't, hey, I've got a $10 million asset and 
just closing on it with one of my buddies and we're going to raise $4 million and handle everything ourselves because it's just not something that you can't scale in that situation because the GPs aren't really making much money on those deals. Yes, they'll make an acquisition fee, but after that, you're going to get a small percentage. Your investors are going to get the majority of it. And so you have to have a system in place with your team so that you can start consistently buying properties. So you're reviewing a ton of properties so you can find that 1% that are good deals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things people get into real estate investing for, as you know, Charles, is leverage, the ability to leverage other people's time, other people's money, other people's resources, other people's skills. And that goes to the power of partnerships, right? Like you said, eventually you're going to run out of your own money. You're going to have to raise money from friends, family members, passive investors, whoever that looks like for you. And with that, you know, you're leveraging the power of a team at that point. And you, like you said, you're not just going out and casually taking down a $10 million deal with your buddy on the weekend, right? It takes a team for that. And, you know, real estate, I like to say is first a relationship business and it's a team sport. Yeah, no, it's for sure. And even if you're on the smaller side of it and you say, well, I have no partners, right? Well, you have parts that you have a team. I mean, you're not going to be doing everything yourself. You're going to have a handyman. You're not painting everything yourself. You're not doing evictions. You're not, you know what I mean? You're probably not doing evictions yourself. You have all these different people, part of your team. They're just not probably equity partners with you. So it's just one of those things where like with my property manager and stuff and stuff like, you know, I'll text them back and forth and see how stuff's going. And they'll text me and be like, listen, like this needs to be painted in the next like, you know, two months or three months or whatever. And this has to be done. And that's the kind of communication you want to have. And then perfect. I'll start looking for a contractor or I have a contractor or you use one of your people in house, whatever it might be. So it's really, you have a team already. If you're successful in real estate investing, you have other people that you're going to call on when there's a problem. It's really now just having other equity partners for you to, because there's so many, there's now used to, you have to bring your own money. Now I have to bring a deal, bring money, and then bring asset management, right? So <laughs> yeah. Can't do it yourself uh, if you scale. So. It's so many hats to wear, and uh, you know maybe if you're managing that duplex, you can manage to wear all those hats. But once you start scaling and getting to that critical mass, those hats become way too heavy for you to wear all of them. For sure, yeah, definitely. Well, Charles, talk about that kind of maybe mindset shift which you had to go through when you started bringing on equity partners. You know, some people want to stiff arm that idea, like, oh no, I want to keep this entire deal. I don't want to bring on partners because then I'll have to, you know, split the deal with that person. That's a limiting belief, but what's your take there? Yeah. You know, I think when I'm going to like how we met at a conference and a lot of people that are going to these conferences, they've already in that mindset, right? They're already in that mindset that this is how I have to bring my business to the next level, right? I have X amount of units right now. And if I want to go to the next stage, to the next level, I need to now find people as serious as I am, you know, that kind of sand off my rough edges of so we can kind of move everything forward, right? And become successful together. And I think that it was tough for me because my dad got screwed by a partner years and years ago. And he was always against it, not like for me, but for him, he never took out another partner afterwards. He did everything himself and perfectly fine. He did well, no issues, but that was just kind of his thing. And he wasn't really trying to scale or syndicate or anything like that. So it was something where when I learned about syndication, <laughs> they actually brought a syndication to my dad. It ended up being uh, turned into a Ponzi scheme. It was like really oh, famous in Connecticut, okay. like, like 700 investors. <laughs> it was like the early, it was the early nineties. Anyway, it was just, so it was like the first thing I ever, my forte into uh, learning about it was that people were selling limited partnerships. And 
it was actually a scam. So I was like, oh my God. So my dad never invested in any syndications. Everything was owned 100% himself. So obviously people, you know, they're going to have their own guidelines of what they want to work with and they'll partner as much or as little as they feel comfortable. And some investors will be fine. They'll go to the conference and they'll say, you know what, just me and my partner, we do everything. It's perfectly fine. I don't want to go any bigger. I don't want to scale. I don't want to raise money. I just want to, you know, pay these things off and kind of retire. So everybody has a new plan, but I think if you really want to grow the business, if you really want to kind of step, you've got to open up your mind and you've got to look at what really successful people are doing. I mean, and really successful companies are doing. And I think that's what something, you know, you follow. So it's one of the things that people are saying, oh, I'm not buying any real estate I read online during 2020 with COVID. Well, Blackstone, Starwood Capital, these guys are buying property, apartment complexes, they're buying. So then, you know, they're worth tens of billions of dollars. So, yeah. you know, they're buying, why aren't you buying or even looking, you know? And that was the thing too, is like, when I was buying in 06, 08, 09, and I realized, okay, this was a single, this was a double, and this was a home run. And you kind of, everything goes through cycles. So you're consistently looking for properties. And obviously you're not going to be getting the home run deals that we were getting in you know, 2011, right? Right now. And your investors are going to be aware of that, or they should be aware of that. I mean, that's your, that's what you should be telling them and showing them. But the thing though, is that they're going to be saying, you know, these are still solid investments. And then obviously we're going to be placed because we're consistently looking at deals. We'll be in the right place if you're working with us where we can bring you deals that, I mean, at some point there's going to be a pullback and it's going to maybe not go back to 2009, but there'll be a pullback where you might be able to get returns that are closer to what you had been getting, you know, five, seven years ago. So it's consistently looking at properties consistently kind of building partners together and always looking for people to kind of fill out where you fail to kind of excel at. Let's talk about that partner piece and maybe looking to your advice on what to look for in a partner when you're trying to grow and scale to that next level. What kind of partnerships and structures have you found beneficial? Any kind of maybe characteristics or skills? What Kind of talk to that point. I would say figuring out what you're not good at or what you don't like. It's usually the same thing, right? So if you're introvert, if you love spreadsheets, if you love the numbers, okay, well, then that's something that you're, you know, work on underwriting, find someone that's going to go out and fill out the other. You find out someone that has some background in construction or someone that is a marketer or someone that has experience that wants to raise money with you on that end of it and kind of figuring out what you don't want to do, I guess, and figuring out what you're not good at. And, you know, you might say, I used to work in construction. This is, you know, I do the asset management, but I've never raised a dollar before, right? So I can manage a property. We can have 50 units that we're doing a value add on. I can manage three different subs in there and all this kind of stuff. And fantastic. That's a perfect person to have as asset management for your team, right? And I can work with property manager. Great. But you're not, that person is not going to underwrite. So it's like there's little parts of every kind of partnership that if you look at each partnership, if you look at successful companies, and then you read up on, which is so easy today with the internet and when we used to go to conferences, right? And you could talk to people and you know, oh yeah, this guy is definitely an extrovert. This is the money raiser. And this is definitely the numbers guy, right? And you can see exactly how that's a perfect match for them to kind of build everything. And every, you know, the other thing too is kind of figuring out and using and leveraging your experience, right? From prior acquisitions. Because everybody, I think, with multifamily and value add, it's just like overused and overused. And when I talk to my friends that are in private equity and they go, oh, you know, the value add thing, it's not even a real because, you know, as we are right now, you're not able to value add during COVID, right? Fully like we were a year or two ago, right? It's more of now the management thing, right? I'm looking for properties that have more of a management aspect because honestly, you're not going to be able to 
really maximize your value add until for another year or two, let's say, right? And the reason you're saying that is why exactly? I mean, you can, we're still renovating apartments and doing it, but we're just slower than we were before on them, Mm -hmm. right? We're just being a lot more conservative because it's as being as, you know, it's very hard for me to, let's say, not renew someone's lease, right? That's paying rent in where we are now in hopes of doing the traditional value add, which is, hey, dump $4,000 or $5,000 into the unit and raise rents by $150 or $180. And that's a great model. And if you're in an area that is going to allow you to do that, that's perfectly fine. But it's something where now if someone's not renewing a lease and you have a vacant unit, it's a different story, right? Or if you have a unit that's completely trashed, obviously you're probably not going to make that halfway towards your business plan. You'll probably go all the way towards your business plan with that, right? If you were going to do stainless steel, you're probably going to go, no, we're just doing black appliances now. You know, we'll probably do stainless steel in that unit and do it so you're not redoing it and that unit's completely done. But it's just one of those things where you're going to be a lot more conservative on what units am I actually flipping? You know what I mean? Am I? I have a lot of units that are expiring, right? In December, right? Or in February. Okay, what am I going to do with those units? Am I going to stagger them? Am I going to, in the sense of, am I going to do some six month? I'm going to do nine month leases on them. I'm going to do 12 months. Am I going to, if I have say 10 units coming up, am I going to renovate two of them? And I'm going to just re-rent you know, eight of them after putting in a few hundred dollars worth of just, you know, paint and cleaning and stuff like this. So that's the whole thing. And, you know, it's just that whole, when you're having pullback in some of these markets on rent that we're seeing, oh, this market was so great. It was, and then we're like right here, you know, in Tampa with properties that we have in Tampa, it was very similar in other markets too. You're just not seeing as much of a rent growth that's happening because with people, you know, as where we are, right? So people paying rent, or like you said, people are not moving like they were into different areas. So, you know, all this is going to be when you're, you just have to kind of look at what your base is. If you can say, hey, people down the street and people over here are still above where I am and I can still value add perfectly. But main thing now is I think focusing more on management plays. So finding properties, which is always a solid thing in any market, right? Up market, down market, you're finding something and you're finding that there's fat there. We took over a property. We bought 90 units a few months back and 68 units were pretty well stabilized. We were just taking it kind of to the next level and we're kind of in that process. 22 of them were very mom and pop and it was like next door to it, right? And it was, (laughs) the guy owned it was paying a 15% management fee to his son-in-law, which funny enough- (laughs) What a family deal. (laughs) Yeah. What what a great guy, right? And uh, obviously his, uh, they're getting his, the owner's daughter and the (laughs) son-in-law because the guy asks us, he's like, hey, do you want me to keep on managing? You're like, no, we're all set, right? But thank you. You'll keep your card. But it's just something like you see that and you're like, it doesn't matter what happens. I mean, like I can, that's very easy. You have down units. They can be re-rented. We're going to do a little bit of work to them. There's some exterior capex that needs to be done, some deferred maintenance. So different things like that will take care of them. And this is a perfect time to do that is take care of a lot of these different exterior, but doing and like really fulfilling your full value add, I think a lot of operators are pausing on. Maybe in some of the high end, you know, B, B plus properties, they're still going through with it. I know in one of our properties, we are, we're just doing a slower pace. We're probably doing one or two units at a time on 98 units versus probably four or five, which we were doing prior to COVID. So yeah, sure. 
Well, Charles, we mentioned earlier in the show how you and I met at the Best Ever Conference. I think that was in January of 2019. Seems like so long ago, (laughs) pre-COVID, when we were out and about, you know, having dinner in downtown Denver is a great time. So I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the power of networking and just connecting with like-minded people. How has that helped you grow and scale your business to where it is today? And how much of that do you attribute to your success? It's very important because it's, uh, you know, in this where you're partnering with people like we've been talking about and where you need to partner to scale your business. If that your goal is to really scale and systemize your business, a business that actually is building an asset or assets and that you possibly can step back from in the future, you need to have partners that you come on board with. And the best way is when you're, you know, when we used to go to these conferences, I used to go to them all the time and I met great partners and great partners that I'm working with today. And I hope to continue doing that networking in the future. And it's, you know, social media is great and everything like that, but really getting out and it can be done through your local meetups. It can be done through face-to-face conferences or seminars, whatever it might be where you're meeting people and you're going to meet all types of people and you can then partner with them and see exactly what they have to offer, what you have to offer. And maybe you can work something together. And with real estate, which is so great, I have, you know, our company has different groups that we partner with on certain deals in different areas of the country. So it's something where just because they're not coming on board into your company or you're forming a company with them, you can still partner with people you're finding. They might say, hey, you know, we focus on you know, Dallas and this is all we do. Okay, great. When you find a great deal in Dallas, I'm in Florida. I don't know anything about the Dallas market, but I have investors that want to invest there. Let's partner together. You know, let's combine our resources and let's take down an asset. And that happens all the time at the conferences. So it's not always having someone that you're never going to leave or you're never going to do another deal with. It's somewhere you can find people that are, you know, maybe you're having deals in your home state and they're in a different state. And they go, we love that state. We want to invest there. Yeah, right? that happens a lot. So especially if you're in a growing area, which is great. So there's, there's all different types of, and that's what the whole conference mindset is. And then, you know, when you get a card, put a little note on it so you don't forget who you're talking to, what you're doing. And I always follow up and it's amazing how many times when I follow up from people with conferences that I never hear back from them. I'll send them emails here or there. And it's like, yeah, I mean, this is the whole thing. You have a business card, you're going to a conference. You have no idea what's going to happen. I've met people before conferences that have their own investments, have their own stuff. And I would just be like keeping contact with them. And I've had some of them become that were active investors, become passive investors on your own deal. So you really have no idea what you're going to find when you're out networking and everybody's got a different story and a different mindset. And you know, hopefully you can work together in the future. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying there. Well, Charles, what are some mistakes you see beginning real estate investors make? And then any advice on how to mitigate those? I think the analysis paralysis is one of them. Mm. And it's great to have that. But with I mean, with news today, you can I have, you know, one person that keeps in contact with me that's never bought a property and they'll send me stuff over. And like, oh, you know, this is like a month or two ago. They're like, oh, everything's burning down and the multifamily's over. And thank God I don't own any multifamily or whatever it is. And then when you look back on your numbers, you're like, oh, we have single, you know, single digit delinquency, you know what I mean, on this area, on this market they're talking about. So you just kind of have to, there's so many reasons not to do a deal, I guess what I'm saying. And don't let someone else sway you or don't be swayed one way or another, not to do a deal or not not to do a deal because. You know, you feel that it's not right for someone else, but it might be right for you. So it's really just that's number one. The other thing, too, is I think it's going to be you're going to be able to scale your business faster by 
you know, I think that even if you do it just for a couple of years, if you buy property yourself, you self-manage it, or even if you have a property manager and you're buying properties without investors, first off, right? It's going to be a lot less headaches because you're just starting to manage a property. The last thing you need to know is obviously someone knows you don't have experience and they're investing with you. They're going to be much more on top of you, right? And figuring out what's going on with the deal, what's happening, give me an update. So you have one other person you have to manage, right? So you have maybe a three unit property or a six unit, and I've got this other person I have to manage too. I think it's much better to go and do it yourself. doesn't matter how big it is. It's great. The, the lessons you'll learn from self-managing, and I self-managed for six years, and I mean, everything you learn is just priceless. Because now you know when you give that property to your property management, you'll know everything. You know, you'll know exactly what they're talking about. And they go, oh, you know, this is a problem with this tenant here with this unit. And, you know, that's a common thing we're finding or whatever it is. And you go, oh, yeah, I know. I mean, like I used to manage these properties. I'm aware of what that issue is. I'm aware of how, whatever it might be. And that's it's just going to make you a much better, well rounded investor when you've done multiple parts of the real estate investing process. Just one more thing to add here before we wrap up, but I find making mistakes is a little bit of a catch-22. People try to avoid ever making them right. They're afraid of making them. And then that, in turn, prevents them from ever getting started. You're inevitably going to make mistakes on your first, second, 10th, 20th deal, right? So you have any advice around just kind of that getting started mentality? When you're starting out, if get long-term debt and buy in a good area, and then just be conservative on what your rents are. And I mean, I and just be over and then just make sure you're being very, you know, on the numbers when you're, if there's, you know, get a light value add. Don't go into something that's missing drywall and walls and stuff. That's down to the studs. That's not, that's for your third or fourth investment. Your first yeah. one, you want something that might need, uh, you know, thousand or two thousand dollars here. You know, I remember I bought one of them. It was just like some exterior lighting and something here and something there. And, you know, you kind of, Go into something that's not going to require that much work on your end, that you can really go into, do a little bit of work too, right? But make sure that when you're doing your numbers out, that you're really underestimating, you're conservative with what you're going to get for rents and buying a good area that is had some sort of decrease in crime and increase in job or population growth, right? And then you'll know, be like, listen, like, you know, worst case scenario, what I'm doing here when you're talking to yourself and you say, you know, Worst case is that we're in this, we're in a good area. It's a quiet area. We have off-street parking. Everything's fine. And then go in with reserve. So it's really buying a good area. Don't do a crazy value add up front. Good debt, right? Fixed debt. And you're really going to minimize a lot of problems that you have. And then when you're going forward, obviously all these people and the people, the team that you put together, right, is going to be something that you can now use on other properties. So make sure you have your team as well. That's great advice. Well, Charles, hey, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. Before we wrap up for the day, let's end with a lightning round, just a series of questions we ask every one of our guests. Are you up for it? Yeah, sure. All right, great. So the first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that? Taking the leap. I think uh, taking the leap initially, my dad kind of pushed me into getting my first property. So it was just something I wasn't... It just got out of college. It was like the last thing I was looking to do. But and then when I was uh, growing in real estate, it was raising money, right? So those are the two big hurdles I had to overcome. Yeah, sure. And then how did you overcome that kind of raising money piece? Raising money is just talking to a lot of people that have been successful in doing it and kind of seeing how they do it. And the other thing too is doing 
you know, when you go to the conferences, people are going to come up to you and at some point they're going to try to raise money from you and kind of find out the best ones are going to come off very, very, it's not going to be an aggressive approach, right? It's going to be a very laid back approach. So that's how I like when I speak to investors myself. So really doing what I would feel comfortable doing is really how I raise money. So I think it's just, I guess, following what's more comfortable for you and what you'd like, if you were in a reverse role, what would you like to happen to you? You know, you probably don't want to be added to a deal email list just because you responded to something, right? I probably want to talk to someone before I get onto an endless email list of stuff, right? And so <laughs> it's just like, which just happens all the time. I can't believe how many times I go to a conference. I've never spoken to anybody's past the conference and you spoke to them for 30 seconds. And now I'm getting deals that are supposed to be from two people in your like in your vetted group, right? And you probably get the same thing too. And it's like, this is like SEC laws breaking. I would never invest with this person. I don't even remember who they are, you know? Right. So that's the thing is just follow what people are that are successful where you want to go. And then just kind of, you know, you have to put your own kind of turn on it and kind of exactly how, what makes you feel comfortable. Well, Charles, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Uh, time blocking. Yep. Time block, whatever's your most important thing for, uh, to get you closer to your goals. And are you using an online calendar? Do you paper calendar guy? What's I used to be a paper calendar guy for so long, but I've, I'll just do it in my like online uh, Google calendar. Yeah. And then I can block that out different times of stuff that I need to do. And what I will do is I will then, no one can like set up a call then during it, right? I, yeah. No one bothers me during it. And I do what needs to be done. And sometimes I have to move that to a different time in the day and stuff like that. But the goal, the thing though, is that it's on your calendar. So it's something that that's the most important piece. Yeah, completely agree. Well, Charles, do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day-to-day? I have about like 10 different websites I check probably once a week on different stuff, all different types of real estate ones. But whatever you're doing, if you're you know with news and everything as it is today, just make sure you're, if you're getting news and news is always, I feel slanted one way or another, always go to a counterbalance source, right? So if you're reading something that might be slanted more to right, read something that might be slanting more to the left and then kind of come to your own. So not a specific source, there's so many out there, but I would just say, you know, read different ones from different people's perspectives, you know? Yeah. And that could be, you know, you're talking right versus left. It could be single family versus multifamily. It could be buy and hold versus flip, you know, just different perspectives. I think that's a healthy thing to do is kind of look on both sides of the coin sometimes and come to your own opinion. Great advice there. Well, Charles, do you have a book recommendation? And if so, why? Any of the 80-20 books, I think is the best. And that's for anybody in sales or anybody in business. So they have the regular 80-20, then there's an 80-20 marketing book. And you just they're quick reads. You can read them if you ever fly again. You can take it on the plane with you. <laughs> and uh, it's a, it's, they're great. They're easy to read. And they'll really show you in every part of your life how it's the amount of time you spend. Certain activities are going to propel you faster than what you think you have to do all these things. You really only have to do a small part of them. And then my first real estate book was not Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like every other person. I read when I was 13, Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. So I know that's probably like, you know, 23 years later, it's completely who knows what people think about that. But it is a very interesting book of how we used to run his life uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. So Interesting. Yeah. We'll link both of those in the show notes for our audience members to pick up. Charles, last question in the lightning round. If you're to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20-year-old Charles? Become a little bit more strategic. Figure out exactly what you want your 5, 10, 15-year goals to be, and then figure out what you can do weekly, monthly, daily to achieve them. And make sure that you're doing that. And that's where that goes hand in hand with the time blocking. 
Yeah, completely agree. Well, Charles, hey, it's been a lot of fun talking with you, reconnecting. It's been a while since we last touched base. I'm glad to have done this podcast. Tons of great just value and content you provided today. If people are interested in learning more about what you do, connecting with you, reaching out to touch base, where's the best place for them to find you? So my company is Harborside Partners. It's harborsidepartners.com. And you know, go to charlescrillo.com or uh, if you can't spell my last name, that's fine. If you want to set up a 30-minute call, just go to schedulecharles.com. And if you're interested in investing passively, actively, just go to schedulecharles.com, set up a 30-minute call. We'll talk about if you've, maybe you've started in real estate investing, maybe you want to, um, and anything else in regards to investing. Awesome. We'll link all that content in the show notes, Charles. Well, hey, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's been so fun talking with you. Thanks, Jacob. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Take care. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.